It's funny how Australia kind of accidentally wound up being the defamation capital of the world. Welcome to a special edition of Crawford Media. Today, we're having a look at the Australian High Court decision that sent ripples around the world and added to Australia's growing reputation as the home of media weirdness. The decision involves what is known as the Voller case, a defamation suit filed against Sky News, News Corp and Fairfax Media. I'll tell you more about the case in a moment, but the defamation claim itself isn't the reason the Voller decision has been covered globally. What is fascinating, and more than a little disturbing on the first pass, is the High Court's decision that posters to social media are legally responsible for the comments left on the posts, not just the posts themselves. In the Voller case, the three news organisations were ruled to be publishers of comments left by random Facebook users on posts linking to articles about a young criminal by the name of Dylan Voller. I enlisted the help of defamation lawyer Hannah Marshall, a partner at Mark Lawyers in Sydney, to help me to understand the decision. So the the case that went through to the High Court was originally brought by a guy called Dylan Voller, and he was the victim of horrific treatment at the Dondale Detention Centre, and images of him were used widely in reporting about the circumstances at the detention centre and the Royal Commission which followed. His case stemmed from news stories being published on Facebook, but the case doesn't allege that the stories themselves are defamatory. It alleges that the comments posted by individuals underneath the stories are defamatory and that the news outlets who host those Facebook pages are responsible for those comments. So it's about third-party liability and the extent to which the host of the Facebook page, the news outlets, is, is responsible. In researching an article I wrote for the spin-off about the case, I read the 71-page decision. You may find it surprising that I enjoyed it. It's dense stuff, but it's rich and strangely riveting. The High Court justices hammer out long and tortured sentences, which nevertheless retain a logical structure. A kind of mental gymnastics is required to understand it, and they think nothing of sprinkling 150-year-old cases into the mix. In general, the whole thing is a view into another world. It's an unsettling world, actually, and that's not because of the decision, it's because of defamation law itself. What the High Court confirmed is that the concept of who is a publisher is very broad. It involves basically anyone who's been involved in making the, the defamatory matter available. And so that's quite meaningful because it means the potential range of defendants in a defamation action is very wide. The second thing they said is that the question of whether someone can escape liability by being what's called an innocent disseminator or a subordinate publisher, that's not a question of whether they're a publisher in the first place. That's a question for whether their position is defensible. And so that hasn't been resolved yet. That's still to come in the remainder of the case now that the High Court appeal's been determined. I had to ask Hannah to explain to me again what she meant exactly by that last bit. And it turns out that while in the case of these three news organisations, they may have been found to be publishers, the publishers of other people's comments, there could be a defence available to them in the coming full defamation case, that is, the defence of being what is known as an innocent disseminator. 
is absolutely a, a defamation defence. And it's been, it kind of, it arose from these kind of really old cases, which the court continues to apply and draw these tortured analogies from the, the newspaper seller or the bookseller or the librarian who is kind of delivering the defamatory material in the newspaper or the book and, and what is their role. And so that's where this concept of innocent dissemination stemmed from. But we're saying there should be some protection for these people who are just kind of bypasses in the communication. They have a role to play, but it's not really their fault. Let me give you a feeling for these old cases. In Bernandine, a larrikin sticks a poem on a golf club notice board in the 1930s, and the club is sued for defamation. In another case, a judge warns that a servant who cannot read is on the hook for merely carrying a package containing a defamation. That was from 1728. The cases were quoted in the High Court decision not as shining examples, to be fair, but indicators of just how easy it has been to fall foul of defamation law. It's funny that the the judges continue to kind of draw on these really old cases and um, apply these analogies, which, you know, they're a bit tortured in the context that we're looking at now with digital publication. And that was kind of one of the themes I took from the High Court decision is that they're really not minded to stray from these kind of historical concepts and they are going to continue to apply them. They're not going to try and reinvent the law themselves to apply it in the context of the internet and kind of digital platforms and digital hosting. You know, that's not what they're going to do. If that's where we want the law to go, then that has to be legislated. Now, that's a really key point, isn't it? It's They've effectively made a decision that is consistent with the case law and re- and really potentially disregards the crazy implications of of that decision in a digital context. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, part of this comes from the the very original first instance decision in the Vola case of this question about publication is kind of what I think perhaps brought a lot of attention to the case and caused a lot of concern in the media fraternity. In the first instance decision, already this first issue of are the news outlets publishers had been set aside as a separate question to be looked at first. And the the first instance judge decided, yes, they are publishers, but he also went on to say, and they are primary publishers. And that really threw the, the media world into a spin because he essentially said that they weren't going to be able to access um, the innocent dissemination defence. And That has a lot of implications, obviously, for media outlets. And the way that the judge arrived at that decision caused a lot of concern. Here I want to add some context. Back in 2016, there was no ability for people who posted things on Facebook to turn off comments. Facebook exists because of user-generated content, and comments on posts are a big part of that content. Unfortunately, in the very first Vola hearing, social media editors got on the stand and said there was a way of filtering out comments by using profanity filters and hacking them to catch every post. The judge took this evidence, which was really a tortured, incomplete method of moderating, and said it was something that news publishers should have been doing. The judge said that the the media outlets did have editorial control because they could apply filters to the Facebook comments of a nature designed to try and capture every comment 
and then vet them and either let them out or not let them out if they were potentially defamatory. And and that really didn't sit comfortably with the way that Facebook works and the way that the media outlets use Facebook and the way that people interact with the media outlets posts on Facebook. So that's kind of where this case first drew a lot of attention. The thing that was probably most concerning was the commercial unreality of that approach where, you know, big media outlets might generate a very large volume of comments on their posts. And for them to have to sit and then pre-moderate all of those obviously carried a commercial cost. The volume of comments is something that has been partially quantified in recent days. Data from media monitoring company Meltwater suggests that well over 500,000 comments are made on news media posts in Australia every month. That's 500,000 comments on Facebook alone. And actually it's well over that because Meltwater didn't audit everyone. Perhaps more importantly, reducing the number of comments or delaying the number of comments on a post would impact how that post was treated in Facebook's algorithm. And so that also had really big implications commercially for the news outlets where they rely very heavily on being treated favourably by Facebook to access audience, which then translates ultimately into advertising revenue for them. And so uh, that was what I think really caused the most concern to publishers, particularly those who rely on Facebook for the large proportion of their audience. The High Court decision wasn't unanimous. The court's two youngest members... Justices James Edelman and Peter Stewart disagreed. To my eyes, there was a clear generational divide between the majority, with an average age of 62, and the two young justices. Edelman is in his late 40s and Stewart early 50s. Edelman pointed out that social media commentators could make remarks completely unrelated to the original posts, and therefore not all comments could be said to be published by the original poster. It's funny, the, the analysis, I think, carries a lot of logic because, you know, if the news outlets publish a story about Dylan Voller and I jump on and make a post that says, how's the thief? You know, th- that's got no bearing, uh, no relationship to a news story about Dylan Voller and the Dundown Detention Centre. And so... Absolutely. There's logic in saying there's no way that you can be responsible for that post as a publisher because you played no part in it. So I absolutely appreciate the logic. This case probably wasn't a good vehicle for looking at it in that way because the the news stories and the comments are both about Dylan Voller. So it's probably a concept that needs to be teased out a little more and perhaps there might be a better case in future for the court to kind of delve into that perspective. On it. Interestingly, neither Hannah nor other experts I spoke to about the High Court's decision were surprised or particularly concerned about it. The fact is, the decision is consistent with existing defamation law. In my mind, in terms of the question that it answers, is, is the news outlet or are the news outlets publishers? I don't think it's a particularly controversial decision. As you said earlier, it's considered and applied kind of case law going back for a very long time. And that question isn't ultimately particularly controversial, I don't think, at the moment. I think in the context of a a news outlet, which has a very particular relationship with Facebook and a particular relationship with audiences and a commercial benefit that derives, I think that I can see that they should, as a start point, be responsible for the comments as publishers. Um, 
But I, I can imagine that there, was a, there may be a case which would tease this out properly. But yeah, on balance, I think from a commercial perspective, I, I actually favour the majority decision. I, mm. I think it's the right analysis for a news outlet using Facebook. It may be that there's another business which hosts a page where, where things are different or in the context of, you know, individuals who don't have that kind of commercial relationship with Facebook. You know, if someone makes a post just on their individual Facebook page and someone, you know, defamation then flows in the comments on that, you know, I can see that there'd be circumstances where that different analysis would start to carry more weight in my mind. But for the news outlets, they get so much out of this and they want people to comment that that helps them, that generates more views and more audience and more ad, ad revenue. Um, in my mind, that's probably the, the key consideration. And I don't, it, it doesn't feel right that they can kind of take all of that benefit, but then disavow responsibility. You mentioned normal people or everyday people, not news publishers. Does this, does, does this ruling have a potential impact to normal businesses and then you know, say charities and then down to the individual, could they be held responsible for comments on things they post? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of could they be regarded as publishers? Yes, the the implications are very broad, but I don't think that the High Court judgment has kind of vastly expanded on the concept of a publisher. The case law has been reasonably consistent over the years in terms of saying that it is a very, very broad concept. And really where the the question will come is is in this innocent dissemination defence and the extent to which that's applicable depending on the different categories of publisher, you know, your news outlets, your other businesses, your individuals, charities. They may each be regarded differently and the circumstances in which that innocent dissemination defence will apply. It, it will be a question mixed both of fact and law. One curious aspect of the Vola case is that neither the actual commentators nor Facebook were sued. The, the decision to pursue the news outlets rather than, say, Facebook is quite interesting. I think Facebook would probably have a stronger position on the innocent dissemination defence. And so strategically, I think it was a smart move by Dylan Voller and his legal team to pursue the news outlets because they do have this different relationship with the people who may make the posts and there's different benefit to gain from it. Whereas, you know, for example, Google has established that it could access an innocent dissemination defence prior to receiving notice of defamatory material in its search results. That happened in a case called Google and Duffy, or Duffy and Google, as it were. And um, in that case, Google received notice of the defamatory material and was too slow to take it down for a number of reasons peculiar to that case. And in, in that case, they were liable, but only after they received that notice. No one was arguing. No one had even raised or argued that they were liable before they received the complaint. What's different in Dylan Voller's case is that he has argued that they're liable from the moment that the comment's posted. And he's chosen to pursue the news outlets as the hosts of that particular page rather than Facebook as the the owner of the digital platform itself. And, and as I recall, he didn't, he and his lawyers did not complain prior to the suit being filed. No, they went, they went straight to, to litigation and, and kind of made a strategic decision to argue the case that way. And that's where this case will potentially create new law. First of all, in relation to the news outlets and, and their role in relation to the comments and the third party liability. And, and then secondly, as to the time from which the, the host can become liable for someone else's comments. 
One of the reasons experts like Hannah and other industry insiders I've spoken to are not too freaked out by the Voller case is that it doesn't really change the game much. If you're in the business of publishing content on the web, social media or the golf club wall, you're walking around a room filled with dynamite. This has always been true in Australia and New Zealand and it seems that while the opportunities for lighting the dynamite have increased with the digital revolution, it's a matter of degree, not a fundamental shift. So the experts are relaxed, but everyday people, when you explain the Voller case to them, are absolutely amazed. How can someone be responsible for something they didn't write, something they didn't authorise, and they didn't even know was defamatory? Well, they can be. That's just the way it is. Ask the servant who carried the message. An important point to make is that defamation law is being reformed in Australia as we speak, through Parliament. New laws have been introduced, and the question of the responsibility of the publishers in a digital context, and exactly where the platforms sit, that's been reviewed. It's not clear when this second round of reforms will actually hit the road, but it could be within a couple of years. Until then, keep an eye on your comments. It's funny how Australia kind of accidentally wound up being the defamation capital of the world. It is hugely pro-plaintiff in its laws. And look, part of that is a consequence of our overall legal structure. So for example, in in America, they have Bill of Rights and, and that creates kind of a different balance of rights. In, in the EU, they have, you know, human rights and, you know, different platform of kind of legal rights which are being balanced. In Australia, we naturally somehow evolved into this environment where we had a, a fairly narrow range of defences available to publishers and a very easy path to commence litigation for plaintiffs. Thanks so much to Hannah Marshall for her extensive comments and analysis of the High Court decision and in calming the farm to some extent. Although as a sole trader publisher, I'm still a little anxious. And thank you for listening to Crawford Media. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Bye for now.